Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 102nd episode, I'll be talking to Joe Thornley, host of the Zealot podcast about cults and author of the Zealot book about cults, about MASH, kind of. Along the way, we discussed the path from wilderness boat child to hip-hop podium dancer to colorblind art teacher, the interconnecting dangers of art and serial killers, and people management lessons of one Hot Lips Houlihan. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. Editor's note before we get started. This is an extremely messy episode. Joe and I had two cocktails each during our Zealot recording, then one in between, and had a fresh one in our hands as we started this recording. Also, I wasn't used to having a handheld mic for a podcast, so you're going to see some levels blown out, a whole bunch of like mic noise and stuff as I fiddle with the microphone that I'm holding in my hand. And look, you know, I mostly left in a lot of the crosstalk and overlapping stuff because we were in the same room together and you were going to hear it anyway, but also I think it's going to bring you into the conversations and make you feel welcome. With that, we join this messy, messy conversation already in progress. that beautiful mash moment is gone and it'll never come back no all right okay joe yeah so for people who may not know you why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake i'm the least unique oh jesus (laughs) (laughs) off to a rollicking start thank you for the cocktails i'm not a unique snowflake because i'm an identical twin Mm -hmm. so for starters but i'm joe thornley and i'm a writer and podcaster currently about cults and I'm just really cool (laughs) (laughs) listeners I feel like I should part the kimono a little bit and explain you see we've just recorded an episode of Joe's excellent podcast Zealot which is about cults and as part of that because I'm me and I am who I am I decided that when Joe said hey I'll have any drinks you want to have Mm. in the fridge I said no why don't I create a custom cocktail for this episode and I did, and we had two of them. And as anyone who's tried my cocktails at home knows, they don't fuck around. So this is going to be a little bit looser. Also, I've got to say, there is an incredible cheese platter to my right. There is a smoky bacon cheese. There's yeah. a truffle brie. There's several kinds of salami. We've already eaten all of the prosciutto, but there are strawberries. There's a capsicum dip. Oh, look, especially when someone else makes the cocktails, mm-hmm. I provide the snacks. You do splash out in the snacks. Although I will say my test as to how drunk I am Mm -hmm. has always been whether I can say in a New Zealand accent Uh the word Uh anti-disestablishmentarianism. What I haven't told people my whole life is that that's pretty much the only thing I can say when I'm drunk. (laughs) So who knows? Yeah, well, the thing is, no, that's that's actually, I would would 
say that's a lovely anecdote, but it is not the truth, because you can also, while drunk, convince an entire bar full of Australians to do what is essentially a massive game of quarters. I forget what the occasion <laughs> was. Was it someone's birthday? It's, it's usually someone's birthday or a weekday or a weekend. And I had only ever seen quarters in the movies. And listeners, you know how to play quarters, because a lot of you are in the U.S., and went to some form of schooling where that was taught along with arithmetic and anything else. I'd just like to point out that that I call it the bouncy coin game. It's quarters is what it is. You try and bounce a quarter into a glass. It's a 10 cent piece, thank you. (sighs) Fine, it's the same size and shape and and it has the same milling on the size of a quarter. Listeners who have been with me for a while now I have a bugbear about Canadian versus Australian currency. (laughs) But the most important thing is I got to watch my longtime partner and mother of my child get absolutely shit-faced playing this game and have to help her limp home after this. Look, I everything except alcohol I am a complete lightweight with mm-hmm. and can only have, including prescription medication, I only need one quarter what everyone else can do. But with the booze thing, my brother in particularly and i if we bring up the bouncy coin game slash quarters we know we're sending everyone else home in a body bag (laughs) get yourself a pine box boys (laughs) nobody follows the killer yeah yeah (laughs) all right so joe let's start with the basics Mm. whereabouts did you grow up i (laughs) i was born about two minutes I, I thought you were going to say I was born a poor black child. <laughs> and I was going to say this is not the place for early Steve Martin movies. Oh, but no. please, continue. I was born about two minutes walk from where I met your partner, where oh. I walked, worked in St. Leonard's. But <laughs> I grew up in French's Forest, which is neither the north shore of Sydney or the northern suburbs. It's, and I kind of mean it affectionately, it's the perineum of the north side. It's with neither one nor the other. Joe! Well, no, I mean, that it's the space between. Which, um, by the way, did you know there was that Lady Hawk song, My Delirium? And <laughs> I could not help singing along with it. Stop playing with my perineum. perineum. Yeah, it happens. Um, and it's, I was talking to my mum about this the other day, that that area of the north side the land had only been opened up for sale for housing really in the late 60s early 70s mm-hmm. so it didn't have an established culture or standard income or anything so it's kind of we're talking proper sydney kind of bible belt surrounding area but it was surprisingly for the time reasonably multicultural so i'm really i'm quite pleased there was no set culture there see i presume this is just from my knowledge of australia that because it was french's forest there were neither french people nor a forest right there were lots and lots of trees so i think the forest bit was right Oh, so it was half right and i was quite literally away from school the day that they taught us the history of the area (laughs) but i was away Didn't they know you were going to do this podcast many years later? They did. It was weird. I didn't understand it at the time. But I was away because our dad had... Our dad has always loved... I say our because the twin thing is a habit. But our dad had always, always been into sailing. And he thought, while the three kids are still young, because I've got an older brother as well, he said it'll be educational and fun if we take them out of school for three months and sail around the wet Sundays and they'll do lessons in the morning 
ballet on the beach in the afternoon because we had a concert coming up and the rest of the time it'll just be fishing and exploring and it was pretty cool. Listeners, you cannot see the faces <laughs> I am making because I may have had this exact daydream when I was maybe 10 and a friend of my mom's had a boat that he would occasionally take down to the Florida Keys after sailing it up to St. Lawrence. And I had an idea of why don't I just go along with him for a semester? Hmm. And God damn it, Joe. We were three tiny little, well, not tiny, we were in, I think seven, five, five to seven, I don't know, Mm -hmm. tanned uncombed <laughs> not homeschooled at the time but boat schooled <laughs> you can't be homeschooled if you're not at home wilderness children the exact opposite of everything i am now wow i would never have guessed that i have known you for i think five years now yeah i never would have guessed that there was this chunk of your life where you were a wild boat child no but it, it also followed a time where before we actually started proper school my parents, who, they're just, I'm so glad I got there. They thought, okay, we know the value of education and we know that normal schools in the area are great, but we've heard a lot about this Steiner schooling. So they sent us to both mm-hmm. in the first year of our schooling just to see which one we took to more. And then they realized we just hung out in the drama and art rooms. So it was off to normal school we went. See, as a new parent, I can say this and so therefore people don't judge me you've got twins send one to one and one to the other and see how they react yeah a walking control group joe although it was our older brother that really michael that really took he i think flourished a bit in that okay so it was the first time i'd ever done bartik I'm going to pretend I know what Bartik is, but for the listeners who may not know, what is Bartik? It's like a a method of dyeing cloth that is notoriously hippie-esque. So you drip wax on it and then put it in a dye bath and then, yeah, it was... It was a Steiner school activity. See, if you had said cyanotype, I would have known what it was. And that's where you, you soak it in chemicals and put it out in the sun and put a leaf on it and suddenly, oh, look, there's a white leaf shape on there. Oh, they would have done that for sure. <laughs> So, you mentioned being a twin. Mm. So, of the twins, were you the evil one? I think so. It was kind of... Mum didn't actually know she was having twins until after I was born. She failed the spot check there. Totally. It was very early 70s, and there was one ultrasound machine in metropolitan Sydney, and it was out in the west and we were as i said in the perineum north and (laughs) never not funny we were a month premature when we were born so i particularly was quite small so we're only the size of a normal size baby and doctors with stethoscopes could only hear one strong heartbeat with maybe a bit of an echo or murmur Mm -hmm. so you were a murmur well no i wasn't a murmur but i was born so premature off we go. I was born. Five minutes later, the doctor literally said, shit, there's another one in there. <laughs> and my, oh my sister was born. <laughs> oh. But she was born blue. So they went, we need to get her to Camperdown Children's Hospital as mm-hmm. soon as we can. Which became RPA, I think. Yes. Yeah. And so Shelley, 24 hours after she was born... A month premature, she had open heart surgery and she was the smallest person to have had 
that kind of surgery at the time. I'm going to ask her that next time I see her. Yeah. Well, she's still got the scar and it's now grown because, of course, she's a lot bigger now. <laughs> she's quite um, tall, yes. Yeah, <laughs> but she's... People are like, oh, is she okay? She's yeah. She's had two kids of her own and she's a black belt in karate. She's fine. But it was a little chaotic. And mum, this was 20 months after my brother was born as well. So this was... She had three children under two. It is rather fitting that we just talked about the Oneida sex cult mm. because oh my thank you God. so much my mum will be so pleased that you said that <laughs> N- not saying that we're linking your mother to these flatware loving bone wizards mm. but we are not saying that no, oh FLBWs <laughs> <laughs> so the thing is I've only known maybe two or three pairs of twins in my whole 37 years and the ones I just knew best were a pair of friends of mine in university who did everything they could to be different. Mm. Like where we met one of them and he had, because it was 2000, so he had a shaved head and a goatee and would wear like leather jackets and t-shirts. Oh, and so then, he was a cool guy. He was the cool, he was decided to be the cool twin. Mm. And then we met his brother who would wear like button down shirts and had like a haircut you could set your watch by and didn't wear glasses and was clean shaven. And so we would see the two, and it was only when we saw them next to one another that we would go, oh, yes, you're twins. Mm. So how did you approach that as a kid? Were you very specifically like, oh, we're going to look as alike as we can to pull hijinks, or no, I want nothing to do with this person? We, closer to A than B, Mm -hmm. but we did... The thing about twins is that Parents dress them alike, not because it's necessarily cute or they want to draw attention. Is it convenient? I'm a a person buying clothes for a small child. Is it incredibly convenient? To just pick two off the rack. Yes. And also mum made most of our clothes. Mm -hmm. On the boat. It was... (laughs) That was only for three months, but yeah. Um, Doe, a deer, a female deer, etc. Yeah. It's kind of like cut two out of the same pattern. Let's do it. So Mm -hmm. the teachers at primary school did insist that she tie different coloured ribbons in our hair though because they couldn't tell us apart but of course on the walk to school we would just swap ribbons you get There's some parent trap nonsense yeah you get a lot more attention as a twin than you do as a non-twin mm-hmm. and we did become a little addicted to that and in fact our parents worked quite hard to make sure that we realised that hollow attention is worthless mm-hmm. you actually have to do something rather than just rely on the fact that you the same genetic makeup. See, I'm I'm just picturing this like hard scrabble like vaudeville manager being like, you can't coast on the fact that you're twins. Yeah. One of you's got to have a talent. That's pretty much it. Mum said it was something like, and it really stuck with me because I thought, oh yeah, I really need to do that, otherwise I'm going to be a pain in everybody's ass for the rest of my life. It was kind of you can get them to look. Getting them to look at you is easy. Why would they look back a second time? And it's kind of like, oh yeah, you have to actually try and give them something and but by the same token we milked it and (laughs) (laughs) so much so that even after we left high school when we first went to clubs and stuff we became the clothed kind that everyone had in the 90s (laughs) but podium dancers so we were like you know hip-hop dancers i'm embarrassed about my entire hip-hop history but um (laughs) you are in fact turning red as you were saying these words but we really milked the alikeness, and I love being the same as her. We have personality differences. Mm-hmm. She's more musical, I'm more artistic, but 
we've avoided being Patty and Selma, but mm-hmm. we still have our every single morning phone call. And it's it's just, it's really nice. And I it does mean I got to independence late. I didn't understand what it was like mm-hmm. to do things alone. Mm-hmm. And I really, really embraced it once I did. But when there's someone with you for the first day of school and high school and a whole lot in camp and all that sort of stuff, then you don't get a chance to become brave. So I, I kind of noticed that, that because I mm-hmm. always had someone there. I didn't really develop a lot of independence until now. And I love it. <laughs> it's interesting, though. I never would have imagined that as being part of it, this kind of built-in safety net. It really is. You don't... It, it's kind of cotton wool mm-hmm. that you're not aware of until until later. And it wasn't until... We even flattered together mm-hmm. when we left home, when we first moved out. And it wasn't till... Well, I moved out to live with a boyfriend. So it wasn't until he and I broke up that I realised what it was like to be by myself. Mm-hmm. And I loved it. Mm-hmm. That's the thing, is having known you now for a few years, I can mm-hmm. say you are... A very individual person and I could see mm. you very clearly having you know your likes and dislikes and what you want and I think it's really interesting seeing it from a standpoint of well this is you kind of forging your own identity from being one of a pair mm. uh, and things I've met Shelly several times now and it's really only when I see the two of you standing together that I go oh that's right they're twins yeah. even though when you see Shelly at first you go oh that that lady looks a lot like Joe yeah But again, you're completely different people. Mm. And at no point would I say, oh, yes, at one point I turned to speak to Joe and, ah, lol, it was Shelley. Never going to happen. Yeah. I think it was, it's just accidental that we got to a really great place where we love being twins Mm -hmm. and absolutely have to talk to each other daily. But we don't, we're not codependent and nor do we try as hard as we can to be different. So mm-hmm. I think we got to a really nice place. Although I can say as a parent now, <laughs> I'd solve that real quick. One of you, pixie cut. <laughs> Done. Yeah. Set. Yeah. Well, in later high school when we were, oh, look, we weren't, we weren't classic French as far as we were trying very hard to be. Mm-hmm. I think London, <laughs> but I had half of my head was shaved and I had like the undercut and spiky on the top and mm. Shelly had long fire engine red corkscrew curls. <laughs> so we were just, yeah, we were forging our own paths. There you I go. Think. See, I was going to ask that, but I think that answers that question neatly. Um, so growing up being a twin in French's forest, you know, being, let's say, let's call it a slightly counterculture haircut. <laughs> uh, what sort of kid were you? Precocious. I am absolutely certain that I was annoying as hell. It did take me a while to learn that whole restrained attention thing. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly... I freely admit that I was one of those kids where I was good at school. So I was used to things coming fairly easily to me and learned how to avoid things that didn't. So some sports things and that kind of thing. So I don't think I turned into a non irritating human until <laughs> I was at university. Mm-hmm. We were kind of popular, but I think... Well, did you and Shelley go to the same university? No, which you, was which You was did good. say we. Did I? Yes. <laughs> no, but I mean, in high school, we were kind of, oh, we were I see. Kind I of popular, see. Gotcha. but I think that was partly... We were confident and kind of fun. Everyone in our family is funny, but I'm, I'm absolutely certain I was annoying. I kind of look back <laughs> and cringe a bit, just going, oh, you didn't have to... An ex-boyfriend of mine, Shane, 
once said, everyone's going to find out who you are. You don't have to throw it at them as soon as you meet them. And even though I hated him saying that at the time, I just went, oh, shit. Just hang back Mm -hmm. and people will find out it's fine. And it was a real... I hate that I hate that someone called Shane gave me an important <laughs> life lesson. How dare you, oh Shanes of the world. So I hope I'm less annoying now, but I'm certainly a lot more relaxed. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, there is something, and I've talked to other people on the show about it, about kind of forgiving your past self for being the bumps in the road that led to the person you are now. Mm. But, yeah, every once in a while you can look back and go, no, that was an objectively horrible thing I did just then. Yeah, because I didn't learn independence till later, and I also didn't learn about hard work and a work <laughs> ethic and <laughs> applying yourself. And I sound like such a cliche <clears throat> and of all the comments I've had from parents and teachers. Mm-hmm. And even one of my uni lecturers, he just said, look, it's annoying that you hand in consistently good work because I know you're not working hard <laughs> you did just you, get by on turn of phrase and did you get that comment on your report card like I did which is that oh you know Lucas is doing very well in this subject he would do so much better if he applied himself and actually paid attention yes 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 and I did get <laughs> on a primary school one Joanne has the tendency to reverse some numerals what I was never good at maths See, I and the, you just said Joanne. I always presumed you were a Josephine. No, I'm a Joanne. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> People who listen to Learn Australian accents take note. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There are a few, and those who are listening to Learn New Zealand accents, I'm really sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, when we had a lawyer at my last job, mm-hmm. a lawyer come to us from Singapore, and he was born in Sri Lanka, and then had been in the UK office, and then the Singapore office and then Australia mm-hmm. and his name was Aftab and he said I met Aftab I yes, Aftab. Yeah. yeah and he said my English is perfect and it was but I do want to learn the Australian accent and idioms and things and I said okay to pronounce my name Joe you just do a J sound and then all the vowels in order and he went Joe and I went <laughs> And I just said, yep, perfect. Now, now you have true. an Australian accent. Yeah. My favorite accent, and I've, brought, I've trotted this story out many times, is my late ex-father-in-law, who was a South German Bavarian who... What a le- relaxed combination. Right? Who then learned English from a Scottish person. Fantastic. Moved to America and worked there for about a decade. Mm. Came back to Germany, picked up his pregnant wife and young daughter and brought them to Australia and landed in St. Mary's. Right. So then add 20 years of living in in St. Mary's. And some considerable jet lag, I'd imagine. Absolutely. And then moved to the Blue Mountains Mm. and retired. Never actually retired because he enjoyed his work. Uh, And then spoke to a Canadian who was a month off the plane. And I heard that and I went, that must be what an Australian accent sounds like. (laughs) No! No, it was not. <laughs> he sounded like the cartoon tradesman that would have a prank played on him by Woody Woodpecker. Does he sound like Moira from Schitt's Creek? Like, just a not non-specific accent. I don't know. He, it's like, he wasn't quite at the Christopher Lambert in Highlander. Yeah. I'm from lots of places. Uh, it's, in Australia, we call him Christopher Lambert. Yeah. Christopher Lambert? Christopher Lambert? <laughs> With Australian rising intonation? 
Everyone thinks we're asking a question. You've got cancer. Yeah. A terrible tumor. You're gonna <laughs> die. Like tears in the rain. <laughs> I know that's Rutger Hauer, but I know it is. See, babes. <laughs> Off the. the Let's just oh do god, it. I can't remember okay. it. The rest of this is just gonna be. Just, it's just off the sea of Orion. Yeah, it's that's the one. Gonna, it's just sea beams. Be famous lines with Australian rising intonation. Jesus Christ! Use the force, Luke. <laughs> I'm your father. <laughs> of course, everyone knows though. If it was Australian, it would be I'm your dad. And if we're doing Blade Runner, just enhance, <laughs> enhance. <laughs> no, no, we're not. Okay. <laughs> that's bad. I can't believe that. <sighs> okay, so. So, Joe, initially when I asked you to come on the on for an episode, mm. I had said that I wanted you to bring a topic, and you had a little bit of trouble coming up with a topic. So, do you want to talk a little bit as to why you struggled to come up with something specific? I was thinking about mostly popular culture that had influenced my life, and then I realized that I've been a journeyman sampler, <laughs> queen of pastiche for my whole life, and it's awful because I realized, oh my God, I haven't stuck to one thing. I don't know. It's all definitely been... I think art, music, writing have informed everything I've done. But I, even then, I haven't stuck to one thing. And I think I just want to be involved or I'm just a flighty person that can't make up my mind. Because I wanted to ask, because you studied art, right? Yes. And correct me if I'm wrong, you were at one point teaching art. Yes, and I had to check first that they allowed colourblind people to teach art in the New South Wales education system that's one of the differences between Shelley and me <laughs> see I was gonna say I am in your home at the moment I do see a lot of very stark black and white yep. paintings and drawings and ink work <laughs> so that does actually make sense yeah and it's I mean it's Shelley and I are identical but some chromos there was either a mutated or broken chromosome as the egg split or just after mm-hmm. which means that I am coincidentally colorblind and my sister isn't. But you just learn your colour theory backwards and then do it. So I studied a lot of art and then became an art teacher for a short time, but working in music retail in the meantime. <laughs> and then I just went, mm, I think I want to work in music. So worked in record companies and music publishing companies and then licensing music for TV and, and Which things. is what you were doing when we met. Yes, yeah. yeah. But all the time writing on the side. Mm-hmm. And my first primary school award was for creative writing. <laughs> so I think if anything's formed it, it's been, I just want to be, I love, the artsy stuff is what brings me joy. Mm-hmm. And I just want to, I always want to be busy and I always, okay, it can kind of, this is quite lame, but I've always said. There is no judgment on this podcast. Great. <laughs> That's very handy. And it's also very, for me, it's very twee. But I always want the three things where I want to be inspired, amazed, and amused. So I want to either go, oh, I want to try that, or go, oh my god, that's amazing, or laugh my ass off. See, I thought you were going to go with the other three things, which is coffee, croissants, and crosswords. <laughs> it's the three C's. <laughs> every every weekend. And they started it at art school when I used to smoke, mm-hmm. and there wasn't a croissant involved. So it was a cigarette, a crossword. And a coffee, because mm-hmm. I would get to, I would get to uni early, and it'd be like that would be my, by myself time. Mm. And now every weekend, let's just say carbs, 
crossword <laughs> and coffee. Oh, there there are a lot of very good bakeries in and around Annandale and Leichhardt Absolutely. and such. Absolutely, yeah. yes. Although, did you see, I'm very sad, De Reggio's bakery has closed and then been bought. Have you seen that? No, but Cherry Moon has just opened literally stone's throw from here. Excellent. No, De Reggio's was fantastic in that... They were a very old school Australian bakery. They were extremely good at the kind of things you could buy in 1973. Like when you got a lamington from them, you got a fucking lamington. Oh my god! Did they do like um, meringues shaped like frogs? Yes. Yep. Yep. A snail that had the the specific pattern of raisins in a spiral that would follow along. It wasn't just scattered upon. It was very and also none of it was like you'll say a lot of nostalgic places. Oh, it's the same kind of place as this, which means it's bad. No. Everything they made was exceptionally yeah, yeah, yeah. good. But what they found is as Annandale became more gentrified and became kind of a cooler area to live, what all they did is they got a new sign and it said, De Reggio's Retro Bakery. No! That's all it took. They didn't change anything about themselves. All they did was they put up a sign that says they were retro and they were able to exist for years in I this don't know evolving how I feel ni- about that. I feel like that's them pandering to people. No, it's camouflage. It's selective camouflage to get by doing okay, what you want to do. acceptable. Also, I'm really mad they can't buy those lamingtons anymore. Oh, shit. Because it had, like, the little piped cream on like the inside. Like, proper sugary. Like, proper good lamingtons. Yeah. Like, when I want to convince Americans that lamingtons are good, I use a picture of a Reggio lamington sitting in front of the sausage dog that used to live at my house and now lives at my girlfriend's parents' house <laughs> to show how big this goddamn lamington is that I bought for $4. Outstanding. It's very good. I forget where I was going with this. <laughs> I don't know either. I have had three cocktails, yep. as have you. Yep. Should we pause for a moment and get another cocktail? By all means. All right. You keep that running. Yeah. We will remake. We don't normally have a cocktail break in the middle of an episode, but this is, for fuck's sake, we're rolling. Look, it's working for us. Well. <laughs> Thank you for the boozage. You're welcome. All right, so we're back. Listeners, it's rare when there is an actual cocktail break in the middle of an episode. But it gave me a moment as I was making up our next round of drinks, which mm. was the same as our previous round of drinks, to think of a question, which is that talking specifically around, you were like, okay, there was a tension from being a twin, and you were very much about putting yourself forward in order to, you know, tell everyone exactly what it is you were. Mm. What was it about art specifically that caused it to be, at least for a little while, sort of the thing that you did? Was there a particular artist that inspired you? Was it a, a particular teacher that gave you that encouragement? Like, what was the story around that? I it wasn't a teacher because the even though some of my art teachers at high school had been reasonably good, mm-hmm. the teacher I had at the end of high school for art she retired the year after and she just didn't give a shit. And she, I mean, art theory was just each taking turns to read aloud from an art theory book and so we all the class for the the high school certificate for art we would all be at the library together trying to teach ourselves what was I mean I know a lot about Notre Dame Cathedral architecture but that's it it's former architecture yeah that's right yeah I believe it is currently on fire yeah yeah. um and when I I think in the first week of the third art course I did, which was art education, where we were learning to be mm. art teachers, one of the lecturers said, I guarantee everyone in this room either had what they consider the best art teacher in the world 
or the worst art teacher in the world at high school. And it was true. Everyone was there because they were either inspired or out of revenge. <laughs> this, um, this rebellious attitude of I'll show them. I'll show them all. But I think there did seem to be, whatever my parents did, mm-hmm. French's Forest wasn't an artsy or gritty area. It was mm-hmm. a fantastic place to grow up, but it wasn't edgy at all. And I really had... My brother and sister and I all had a taste for the edgy for whatever reason. I don't know. Mum, uh, mum was very musical. Dad is very well. That is, um, Dad's really intelligent and he doesn't think he's creative, but he always makes stuff and fixes stuff by himself. And so we always just, as people living in the suburbs, we loved going into the city and just looking at clothes and art and and i think art as well as music just meant that we were finding stuff out about other Mm -hmm. and it did feel like a little bit of i say escape but i don't mean that with french's forest because it was a you know an absolutely great place to grow up but it might have been the attention seeking or something but it was more it was so interesting and there was always something new happening and I think that idea that you can never know it all or see mm-hmm. it all. And I was reasonably good at art and I wanted to try it. And it was just this world that it was a bit about sex and it was a bit about drugs sometimes. And it was about these... There was partly the history side of it mm-hmm. where you learned a lot. And then there were artists like Escher and Magritte, who were my two favourites at the time, mm-hmm. who were just going fuck the rules this is what i think art is and as a totally rule following law abiding goody two shoes <laughs> girl middle class everything that was delicious there is a real fun in i know i felt that with marguerite and with escher as well and also in with books and things with someone like Douglas Adams or things like that where it's like you'll occasionally hit something and the bicycle chain of your brain will kind of skip a gear for like half a second and then right itself but you'll remember that feeling and you'll go you're you're doing something it's like similar to I remember it and this is I apologize, a long bow to draw. Mm. In my first year in Australia, I was given as a gift the Billy Connolly tour of Australia, which is a DVD series of a documentary of him traveling around Australia and looking at interesting Australian things. And showing his bum to the camera. Yes, which was, of course, his his thing at the time. And it was very funny, but it was also that he would go to these places and later when I was, had been in Australia for several years, I would go to those places myself. And he had been friends with Brett Whiteley. And there was a moment when he was talking to Brett Whiteley's widow and they were in his studio and they showed his portrait of, um, was it Rembrandt, I think? I forget. Mm. I'm having a momentary mental blank because we've had four cocktails. Yeah, yeah. But it was a very realistic portrait until you took one step to the left and you realized the nose was a sculpture that came out of the frame. And if you're looking at it straight on, it just looks like a realistic portrait until you step to the left and there's this massive nose sticking out like a sore thumb. And it's, I think because art and that extreme or slightly left of center creativity Mm. is children's LSD. Or, you know, young teens, LSD. It's it a changes way... how you think. Exactly. And I think at the same time, I was super into art and as much into music as the next person. But I was also getting into stories of 
serial killers and stuff. I really mm-hmm. liked those kinds of stories. And I think it's because here are people that don't think the same way as us. And mm-hmm. here is what they did with that. And even though art is a much better pursuit than becoming a than serial murder. killer. Yeah. Murder, death and murder. I think it was that, I w- like, what do people do when they think differently? And art was scarier, I think, than the murder stuff. It's a real way of getting outside your head mm-hmm. and going, what else? What else is out there? And how do other people think? There is that thing of, and, and I've read, when I was a teenager, I read a little bit of that true crime stuff. And my dad had a book on Ted Bundy. Mm. And I remember taking it off the shelf like I was moving dangerous chemicals. Yeah. Right? Like, I was so pleased when I came home with a, um, from the bookshop with an encyclopedia of serial killers. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was just showing off. <laughs> You're shaking the chemistry set there. <laughs> but it's, it's this idea where you're reading along and everything will seem normal and then something will go to the yeah. left. And you just go, oh, this is where the scary part sits. Yeah. Plus yeah. with art, there's tits and dicks in it. <laughs> <laughs> Except if there's a column, at which point there's art. If there's no columns, it's basically porn. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So you walk around a museum looking for columns. <laughs> Sure, let's call it that. I can't claim that. It's a Terry Pratchett joke. (laughs) So speaking of serial killers, it's a very nice segue Mm. because I don't know if people know this. I'm pretty sure they do because your podcast is far more popular than mine. But you are a rather famous murderino. Uh, Look, yes. And I'm so glad that Ned Flanders slash Karen Kilgariff and Georgia Hardstock from My Favourite Murder came up with that word because it does and I think most murderinos acknowledge this Mm. murderino describes something that we all thought was just something wrong with us (laughs) that's like why I still don't know why women and it is mostly like middle class and I think more than half white women are obsessed with murder and true crime and that sort of thing Mm. but we are and there's a name for it. It's not just that it's a name. It's a certain joyous name. It's funny that you brought up the Ned Flanders thing. Because while it's there in, in the phrasing, when I picture that, I picture Ned Flanders when he goes to the apple cider place. And he's wearing a hat that is shaped like an apple on top of his head like a tooth. <laughs> and that is the level of enthusiasm that I see brought to this true crime serial killer space. Yeah. Like if you could wear a hat that was of a serial killer, which I presume would be of a body or a head or something. But and it is like a drug it's oh, wait, I just had a thought. Mm. None of us are proud mm. that we treat horror like entertainment. That we treat other people's real lives and the bad things that have happened mm. as entertainment. None of us like that side of it. And there's a massive empathetic side. Like when I talk about cults, I think that the leaders deserve ridicule, but I, I never direct that to the followers. But it's a drug. We're addicted to it, and it makes us feel a certain way. And it's not great, but it's it's so bizarre that it's a movement, but it's also a really friendly, supportive, bizarrely communal group. I think there's something to it, and I mean, I feel this way a little bit about some of the kind of grotesquer sides of comic books, mm. because especially when it comes to like Vertigo comics and things that where, uh, like some of the Marvel Max titles and things written <laughs> I'm by Garth Ennis. I know there are things where it sort of revels in the grotesque, 
And that's never been a draw for me. However, whenever I read about that stuff, I always find myself going to Google Image Search to look up the things that I've just read that I probably don't want to read yeah. as part of a book, but I will happily see out of context to see what the hell people are talking about. See it and go, ugh, no, that's not what I want. And I'm sure that would have bothered me if it had come up in a story I was really invested in. Well, here's the thing. So it's, it's like coming up to the edge of that yeah. cliff and then coming back. It's a mini theory that I've formulated loosely the Joe Thornley theory mm, of mm, murderinoism if you take The Handmaid's Tale mm. and I've spoken to men who have watched it and women who have watched it and men tend to find it super depressing and women more often see it as a story of rebellion and hope and I think that might because it's about gender yeah and I think that might go some way to the true crime thing. Murder of the type that is interesting to true crime enthusiasts or murderinos mm -hmm. is usually happening to women, or at least by men. Mm -hmm. And I think it's that whole story of how they develop, but also the story of how they get solved and caught. And in any of the true crime podcast live shows that you listen to, when they get to the end where they say that someone either survived or the bad guy got caught, there is an incredible throbbing cheer from everyone. So it might be that kind of thing. It's like, fuck, we made it. We made it through one. No, it makes perfect sense. And I mean, even up until that point, there's even this idea of, and I realize I'm stretching when I say this, whether it's, oh, I'm experiencing something where there's danger, but it's not real danger to me. But then also it could be, so I'm learning this as kind of like, you know, I'm learning the turns of a rally course. Yeah. Where I know that when I see that thing, it means this. Because I have the cheat codes to this particular thing. Yeah. But again, I don't really love that explanation. But I actually like it much better the way you just put it. Well, I've had four cocktails, so I can't even remember how I just put it. <laughs> and they're good cocktails. Oh, I can vouch for this. They're fantastic. Mm. Oh. <laughs> I want to talk about mash. All right, so I gotta say this: before the microphones were recording, between when we finished Joe's podcast and before we started mine, Joe said, "I don't care what we talk about, as long as we can talk about mash." And having now been in Australia for coming up on seventeen years, I presume she meant a squished potato product. Yeah. Even though I am a renowned connoisseur of war movies and war fiction, being a dad as I am, mm. because I am a stereotype of myself, I realized Joe meant the Alan Alda-led comedy TV show that is MASH. Handy pay. About the Korean War, but set during the time of the Vietnam War. So Joe, why was MASH so incredibly important to you? Partly because it was on at 7 o'clock every night and I'm completely delighted that it's still on every night. <laughs> also, I played terrible saxophone in the high school concert band and every single concert band in every single high school <laughs> and did you suicide painless? played the goddamn theme from match did you play alto or baritone sax alto only i wanted to play high five i know but yes. i wanted to play baritone but i had little stick arms i couldn't take it home to practice ba baritone is so much easier to the point where when i sucked real bad at alto 
they gave me a baritone part and I would just play those oh, notes on an alto sax. Bar- I love any instrument that's got that kind of intestine curdling mm. vibrato in the lower notes. Yes. Yeah. And I just couldn't. I couldn't, like, they said, oh, you can't carry it home to practice. And I felt like going, as if I'm going to practice. Sorry, bitch, I carried an alto sax home. It's real heavy. I know. I wish I could have said to both my primary school and high school music teachers, mm. it's like, bitch, I'm not learning how to, how to apply myself <laughs> until I'm well into late high school. <laughs> It doesn't matter if I'm carrying this instrument home. Oh my god. The thing is, I, I did hear on a Futurama commentary, because I am a person who listens to Futurama commentaries. Yeah, they're very good. Mm-hmm. At one point, they had to use Suicide is Painless and a caricature of Hawkeye Pierce, who was iHawk instead of Hawkeye. And it was like an iMac thing. <laughs> like he had a maudlin and a funny switch that he would switch back and forth. It was it was very on the nose. It would be like, ha this isn't a war. This is a murder. And he'd flip and he'd go, this isn't a war, it's a moida. So they had to then get approval from the writer of Suicide is Painless, which meant they had to send him the bit of media where they would use his music and he would have to review it. So just imagine this man sitting in his living room and his entire life right now is listening to variations on Suicide is Painless, a song he wrote for a TV show and movie. How many years ago? Mate. Half of my working life has been sending songwriters scripts and scenarios to try and get music cleared for things. Yeah. Except for most of those songs are happy songs. Well, kind of. Except I used to work for the music publisher that represents Johnny Cash's Ring of Fire. Oh, my God. And so I was the one that had to say, I'm sorry, hemorrhoid cream ad. (laughs) (laughs) June Carter Cash's estate has has said, no, you're not doing that. Swingers used the Jaws theme for Jon Favreau trying to pick up Heather Graham and had to send that to Steven Spielberg to approve. Yep. And he liked the rest of the movie enough that he helped promote it for them. And that would have only been for the recording because it wasn't written by him. So they would have had to go to the publisher as well. Jaws is often, that's one of the things I often use because there's a myth that if you use less than eight seconds of a tune that you don't have to get it cleared. And that's not true. It's if you use any recognisable part of a tune. And... That's it. That's all you need. Yep. One second. So you were going to say something. When I was working for a music publisher... Radiohead hardly ever approved anything except they would always listen to requests for student filmmakers. So advertising, no. Movies, no. TV, no. Student filmmaker, send through a script or a rough thing. And it was such a joy sometimes saying to like a student filmmaker, Radiohead would like to see your... Tom, a York rough wants cut to know of your, what your film, message is. or at yeah. least your, you know, <laughs> your script. Can I you send that. it through? I know. It makes me happy. It's really good. My little proletarian heart. Yeah. It's like I had Al Kennedy on to talk about Discworld, and apparently because he was working for a student paper, Terry Pratchett let him and his people in to interview them because they were the student paper, they were the battlers. Mm. And he was like, they were the only ones who came in having read the books. Yeah. Because of course they're students. Of course yeah. they would read the books. And can I just, because there's one more thing I want to say about MASH, but mm. I want to ask Don't you Don't worry, first. there's lots more to talk about MASH, oh, good. but yeah. When you watch a show, any show that's been on for a long time, or at least has, even if it was only a short thing, but has mm. been popular for a long time, 
do you find yourself identifying with some characters early, but then later, the characters you initially hated, you kind of get? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, George Costanza is a... Oh! Uh, a good example George. of that. I have been re-watching Seinfeld because I realised the day I sold off my DVD copies... Hey, I'm loath to get rid of media until I found out someone could give me money for it. Yeah, and it, you've said in another episode that you didn't think you were a fan, but then you were like, "Oh, I know everything." You know everything, yeah. And I've been watching. I actually started on season four, episode one. We're now into mid season six on the rewatch. Whenever we're not watching anything, I put on Seinfeld. It's really good for that. Mm. But yeah, and you watch George, and you're like, if you don't identify with George, you fucking know people who were <laughs> yeah. George's when he's like you can't tell me wine is better than Pepsi I'm gonna bring Pepsi to this dinner party and I'm like you piece of shit you have come to my dinner party I've had you over well with MASH it was I mean Hawkeye of yeah. course but I was quite surprised at how much I ended up identifying with Margaret Houlihan and then with Hot Lips really and then Winchester yeah but I had a revelation recently and it was like, oh my God, I am the exact, as an adult, I am the exact midpoint between Hawkeye and Margaret Fulham. Wow. Okay. I'm going to ask you to tease that out. Please explain. (laughs) One of the reasons I was annoying as a child is because that I had to come up with a wisecrack for everything, which is a a Hawkeye (laughs) thing. Yeah. As you sip from a martini glass, I should say. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and the boozing, less the womanizing, of course, because, you know, genetics has made me straight and relatively humble. No, <laughs> fuck, not humble. What's the word I want? I'm not sure. That's a lot of cocktails. Just keep swinging. Uh, You'll get there eventually. But then, and I always wanted to be wisecracker with a heart. Mm. But then I realized that to be the kind of, it's going to sound dumb, but be, to be the kind of woman I want to be, Especially in the industries I've worked, which is music industry and TV mm-hmm. in particular, where it was still a boys club for a long, long time and a real sort of wild frontier, corporate rules don't apply to us kind of frontier, that you have to be all those stereotypical things, which is ballsy and brash and stroppy and mm. strident. And my, my dad hates, he used to hate that I would wear a ring on my index, index finger because he was like... That's what people that point at you aggressively do. And I feel like going, that's what you have to do. Just to underline your work. work. Yeah. And then you watch it again. You know, you watch MASH for the 25th time. Mm-hmm. And you just go, she's the perfect woman because she's always got this struggle between what she's supposed to do as a woman and what she feels natural doing as a leader and... A progressive person that wants to kick against their pricks. But also, fuck you. I want to actually get things done. Yes. Yeah. And she has... I also identify with her a bit because she's attracted to all the wrong men. But she just... She learns from each experience. Although I still don't get Frank burned, but still. No, but also... Because he's the fucking worst. I have to admit, and I'm not proud of it, that I did have... It's not an affair if I have it, but he had... A married man had an affair with me. And not proud of it. Look, it ended fine, but it was kind of like... Mm. So I was kind of like, oh my God, Margaret Houlihan, I get you. <laughs> I get you. There's also something, I think, where depending on the industry, where it's like, this is something that's happened to me specifically, where you know how when you're younger and you see episodes of something where the manager is just a, just a fuckwit and you're like, what are you doing? Yeah. You know, Why are you ruining everyone's fun? Why are you harshing everyone's mellow? Mm. 
you piece of shit what are you doing and you rewatch that thing as you're older and you're just like oh i get it you idiot children why can't why is this so hard why can't you just do your job you know why can't you turn up on time do the thing at all i'm asking you do you know what i the show i don't do that with what the cosby show oh no no (laughs) no luckily we have not had a cosby episode of this podcast good it makes me happy but I have actually had that feeling. Do you ever watch Party Down with Adam Scott? No. And, and the... Oh, no. I've watched, I've watched like two or three episodes. Yeah. Because yeah. it first starts off where the manager is a buffoon. He's played by the guy who played CJ, the captain in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He's very good at being a very bad authority figure. Yeah. And the story is then about these people who are not doing their jobs. And that's fine. That's the story. And then Adam Scott gets promoted to manager. And you see him earnestly trying to get a decent job done with the least amount of hassle. And oh my god, as a people manager, my heart went out to him because one, he was promoted internally. Two, he was just like, look, let's just all get paid to the minimum amount that we can. And then you can all goof off, I promise. When I decided I didn't want to be an art teacher but wanted to work in music in some capacity. Mm-hmm. I was already working casually in music retail when that was a thing. Actual, <laughs> actual shops. Which shop? Go on, tell me. HMV. Oh, hey, HMV. Hi, bye. Yeah. Um, there you go. And I hated being good at it, but it was kind of like customer service is easy because you just... Be nice to people. Are you kind to people? Yeah. And you try and do what they want and try and give them what they want. So I just thought, and it is... Because of, like I said, my dad instilled a really good work ethic mm-hmm. in us all. And it was kind of like, okay, if you're not going to be an art teacher and you've chosen to do this in the meantime, then do this properly. Mm-hmm. So I did reasonably well and then became an assistant manager and a manager with the same people that I'd been working with previously and mm-hmm. had to... It is hard because you have to get their respect, but also it does work if they still like you. But you do have to then tell them what to do and there's a balance to be struck absolutely it kind of worked when i was teaching because i just thought okay you have to not care whether or not they like you because if they respect you then eventually they'll probably like you yeah but i think the two biggest lessons i learned from that experience Mm. were one that one get respect first and then they'll like you if you're likable it's fine yeah and the other one was the absolute skill of saying I don't know because being the kind of child I described and always having to prove that I was smart and cool meant that I couldn't say I don't know and once I realized that I absolutely could say that and that was the only way to get shit done my entire life changed (laughs) and humility mixed with I don't know but I'm going to find out, or I don't know, or show me, and then we'll get it done. Mm-hmm. Oh my, that completely changed my life. And that's, I wish more politicians would do that. Oh, yeah. I wish more people would do that. Just go, I don't know, but let's ask some questions and let's find out and let's just get it done. It's such a powerful thing. And again, it's accepting that you don't know makes it a collaboration rather than I'm telling you what to do. Yeah. Or you are doing the thing that I'm watching. It or becomes a two person. Therefore, it's not worth. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it was something where, and again, I'm going to step into my day job for a minute, where I was discussing this with someone where it's like, we were discussing stuff around problem solving and root cause analysis. Mm. 
you know when something goes wrong why did it go wrong and everyone says they don't have time for this sort of thing because everyone's putting out fires everyone's doing stuff right now and by the time you get a solution you're on to the next thing no one has time to sit around and talk about why something went wrong and it's not about people sometimes mistake that for who's responsible for this going wrong. this is where i'm going waste of time because when we were talking about it someone's like well no one wants to sling blame and i said oh my god see again talking about again bringing it back around to the art thing it's when you step outside the problem and you stop saying whose fault is it yeah and what you say is who was the person who brought this to this problem to our attention to be solved thank you for bringing this problem to our attention we are now all going to apply our intellect Mm. to solve it together because what you are is you're the full stop at the end of a sentence and we want to read that sentence so why don't you let us look at whatever processes brought you to this to the point where you made this decision that was then reclassified as a mistake why don't you help us understand and then we can fix it so it never happens again yeah like that's brilliant to be able to say like let's not beat you for having this thing happen to you because it's not your fault it's the problem of a greater system let's fix that i will say also that so along with those lessons i also learned truth which sounds bigger than it is it does sound very big it does sound like a four cocktail statement <laughs> hey man you know what i've learned I truth, truth man but at the bottom of glass i realized probably late teens or early 20s that i would have made a really really good liar and i thought i don't want to be a really good liar i hate how lying makes me feel Mm -hmm. so i'm not going to do it like yeah because that makes sense because the people who are really good at lying probably don't feel bad about it you know it's like yeah well they have to keep so many plates spinning it blows my mind you're you're bouncing you're skimming on the edge of the water you know yeah and so one of the so i decided not to lie but i'm also obsessed with lying and the Mm -hmm. techniques of lying and i'm also considering starting a second podcast about lying i mean i've designed a logo that's how serious it is (laughs) but as i've become more interested in politics and and art art and comedy being interested in art and comedy helps you become interested in politics because those things happen at their sharpest when there's something to kick against yes I just think, and it might have been the comedian Joel Creasy who tweeted something around the time of the marriage debate in Australia, mm-hmm. whether or not same-sex couples could marry. Which is happily been, yes. Oh, thank God. Or actually, probably not thank God. Um, yeah. <laughs> and he was like, it would be a much more honest debate if the no side just came out and said, rather than traditional values bloody bloody blah if they just said gay people scare me or i find the idea of anal sex confronting yeah or confronting and it's like because we know that that's true we know that that's the case and that's a starting off point and we can we can work on that we can totally accept that because people that aren't used to an idea are frightened of it but when you do all this subterfuge and other, try and dress it up as something else, it just becomes a complete festival of bullshit. So I love, I love that. And I think that racist people should just say people that are a different colour confuse and frighten us. Because we can work on that. Yeah. Not things like, 
they're going to steal our jobs. It's like, show me some evidence. So I love the idea of absolute truth because then you can just get shit done. Mm. This got too serious. I'm sorry. This did get, the thing is, this swung, this, like, I quoted shit from my job and now we're talking about radical acceptance of truth. I'm being Ernest Hawkeye. <laughs> you flipped your switch over to Maudlin. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Again, we have had four cocktails. Yeah, true, true, true. All right. And actually, I think that's a really lovely place for us to wrap it up. So, Joe Thornley, yeah. if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? They would <laughs> I've called everything after my own name, which makes me an idiot because... Thornley, everyone spells your name wrong, everyone Joe. Everyone spells my name wrong. So I'm always Joe Thornley, all one word, E-L-Y. J-O-T-H-O-R-N-E-L-Y. Correct. Very happy that I did that after four cocktails. <laughs> and the only thing I'm disappointed but also relieved we haven't talked about is the fact that I was a white middle class girl in my late teens who was intensely into hip-hop okay we're stopping the end of the show and we're gonna talk about so joe when did you let the wu-tang clan into your life look it was <laughs> i was very much east coast oh all right all right yeah but like i said late teens, i was i find myself intensely privileged to have been a teenager in the 80s and in my 20s in the 90s because that meant that I was at the start of the second wave of hip-hop and at the start of dance music and at the start of a whole lot of things. I hate to admit it as a white middle-class Australian... So, you know, privilege, privilege, privilege. I took an intense interest in things I didn't understand, but as a result, started to get interested in race relations Jazz, funk, soul, because I, I, <laughs> I chased up all the samples that yeah. I heard and found out where they were from. You heard that one drum beat a whole lot. That, yeah, yeah. That one snare bit. Like, yeah, you fun- know the one. Yeah, funky drum. Yeah, you uh, know. You know. So I'm embarrassed, but at the same time, I'm really glad. But again, it was like, the, it was finding out what else there was. I think it's a good place to end it. Yes. So. Everyone go out and listen to Zealot, listen to my episode of Zealot, listen to other people's episodes of Zealot, and listen to that one live My Favorite Murder where Joe kind of hijacks the show. I've been walked! It was the greatest! <laughs> I was so pleased. <laughs> also, there's a book coming out, yes? The book's out. The book's out. There you go. Yeah. Even more so. It's called Zealot. It's about cults. That's not a surprise. And ladies and gentlemen, I am looking right now at a cheese board. <laughs> With the Zealot logo laser etched into it. It was a gift. From our mutual friends, Eloise and Alex. Love you, What's folks. Up? Who are currently in St. Louis. God damn it. <laughs> where the cheese boards ring all day. <laughs> I did not know there were as many Nelly songs as there were until I went to a wedding in St. Louis. <laughs> Look, as far as I know, there's still only one, but they play that every 15 minutes in St. I, I knew there were at least four, but there are many more that I heard played where there were grandmas dancing to Nelly at that St. Louis <laughs> wedding. Which, by the way, if you go to a wedding in St. Louis and you just think, I'm just going to drink gin and tonics, I'll be fine. Watch them free pour a gin and tonic. I got messy at that wedding. My first drink in St. Louis, because it was before the wedding, I just yeah. went, I couldn't decide what I wanted, but I'd been on a plane for an entire day. And I just went, I just went, okay. Oh, can I just have a whiskey on the rocks? And after we'd sorted out what that meant to me, <laughs> they just 
filled the glass to the top. Yeah, Americans, what are you doing? Oh my god, the fact that I didn't need to go back to the bar for at least another 20 minutes was amazing. Yeah, it was great. Oh man, yes, watching uh, Alex Monning's grandmother, Jean Nance, oh my god. G- dance with our friend Steve Murphy, who was, was it, what was his job title? Until very recently? Until this week, director of publicity. Yeah, very lovely guy, love you Steve. Love uh, you Steve! Yes, it, anyway, everyone should go have a wedding in St. Louis, they will learn things. <laughs> Also barbecue, yes. Oh, uh, hell yes. Because that one couple of days in St. Louis has allowed me to have barbecue conversations with so many American folks. And that was all I wanted. Apart from the wedding, that was all I wanted. I just wanted some American barbecue. Yes. Also, the City Museum in St. Louis. Um, my friend Becky recommended it, and it's it's basically a giant playground for adults. Like you can follow. You mentioned it that time, and I didn't get to see it. Oh, it's so good. There is no map of it because they want you to get lost. It's very cool. Oh, anyway, it's like the opposite of IKEA. It's the best. Uh, anyway, we should probably end the episode because <laughs> we've been drinking since like two o'clock in the afternoon, Joe. Barkeep. Barkeep. That's me. Why are you yelling for me? All right. Bye, everyone. Thank you, Joe, for coming on the show. Oh, pleasure. Thank you. All right. It's stop and say that goes goofy at the end. Thank you very much to Joe Thornley for her time. Now, Joe didn't have to tell me what kind of drinks she likes because she's been over to my house and I've made drinks for her for a long time. So when I presented this one to her before the recording, she took a sip, made an extremely pleased face, and said something to the effect of, that's my kind of shit. And honestly, what higher praise can a barkeep expect? And so I present the Hot Lips. In a shaker full of ice, combine one and a quarter ounces of Speyside Scotch, one ounce of Tawny Port, half an ounce of Sweet Vermouth, and two dashes of Peychaud's Bitters. Shake vigorously until the outside of the vessel frosts over. Strain into a martini glass. Garnish with a twist of orange peel. Contains the doctor's recommended daily dose of all the power you need to keep kicking against the pricks. Enjoy! Now why is everybody so mad at the South Fall? Change your style up, switch the South Matthew is normally recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, but this week was recorded in Annandale, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every second Thursday, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. 
You can follow the show on Twitter at TheMathTheView, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash Lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or you can pledge as much as you want. You could, like Fat Joe just said, make it rain. Patrons get bonus cocktail recipes, physical mail, and I would just really appreciate it a whole bunch. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can go to Apple Podcasts in the country of your choice and leave a five-star rating. It helps people find the show. You can also write a review, and I'll read it out. Won't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. Go to bit.ly slash you with capitals at the beginning of each word to find a Spotify playlist going all the way back to episode one. That's 102 episodes and nearly a full day of music, including this song. It's Number One in Heaven by Mander. I thought it fitting, considering the culty terrain. I update the playlist as soon as the episode goes live, so make sure you subscribe and get new music in your ears. Next week, I'm not sure who I'm going to have on. It's a mystery. Join me, won't you? Lucas, here's an earworm for when you're editing. A little bit of Spanish play for you. I'm not going to do the high notes, I'm so sorry.